Artist Sam Leach's work focuses on the connection between science and art with a modern twist. He uses AI to compose art he then paints. It's a blending of two fields in a similar way that researchers are blending machine learning and neuroscience to push the limits of AI. Today we have here Emeritus Professor Srini Srinivasan and on the line from Melbourne we have artist Sam Leach. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So Sam, tell us about your artwork and how you make it. So I have a process where I basically use machine learning, as you said, in the intro to compose artworks, then I manually go ahead and produce a completed painting. So I'm basically getting a database of input images that I'm feeding into a machine learning algorithm and the algorithm then processes and learns from the images that I'm putting into it. And it tries to compose an image that uh, in some way resembles the set of input images. So it's looking for visual connections and, and similarities between the set of input images that I've loaded up. And then it's producing images that it thinks would sit comfortably in that set. You can produce a, essentially an unlimited number of these images. And I pretty much go through and select things that I think look you know, interesting or visually appealing or things that I think I would be capable of painting and pick them up and then make the painting out of them. So it's very much the, the compositional part of it is being done by the machine learning and then the execution part of it is being done by me. So you're adding your touch to it then? It's similar in a way to in the early days of photography, for example, artists would go out and take photographs of things in the field or in their studios and develop paintings based on those photographs. And then coming through from the 19th into the 20th century, you began to have the emergence of a school of photorealism where people were emulating the effects of photography, but in paint. Towards the second half of the 20th century, you had digitally generated images, especially Photoshop, really. And, you know, the majority of artists were using Photoshop to compose their paintings and then painting from these digitally composed images. So even if they were working from photography, usually they would be altered or adjusted in some way in Photoshop and then the paintings would proceed from there. And to me, this is the next step from that where rather than relying on photography as a way of generating the source image and then manipulating it, I'm able to say, well, this is the type of imagery that I'm interested in and have this algorithm produce images and then I paint from that. So I'm using technology to develop the source material for the painting itself. And I think that's, you know, it sits, I think, very much in the tradition of painting using these emerging forms of technology and absorbing them and just, just reflecting them back. So what sparked your interest in AI and integrating it into your work? Did you have a lot of experience in that beforehand? I didn't have any experience in it beforehand. I guess tangentially, if I go back to my early history, I originally studied economics at uni and majored in econometrics and then worked for the tax office for a number of years doing doing forecasting. So I've always had some interest or affinity with data and statistics and data manipulation. So in a sense, that part of that interest was there. And this type of machine learning is very much a data-driven exercise. So that's been there, but I didn't have any experience with coding or machine learning or artificial intelligence or anything like that. And actually to get started in the area, I had to get in touch with coders and I ended up collaborating with a physicist based in Dublin who was able to, to help me to develop the algorithm that I, that I was using. So that sort of technical side of it was really beyond my capabilities. I've learned quite a bit since that early stage, but I'm still in really way over my head when it comes to, comes to coding and programming. 
But the actual interest in it came from getting to know Srini and the work that he was doing. And especially, I was very interested in the development of biomimetic robots and the way that they were using visual information to interpret and navigate the world. The fact that some of the experiments involved producing visualizations of what the machines were, in a sense, seeing and trying to sort of reinterpret that through human eyes. I just found a really interesting process. So to me, it was a really unique perspective and a totally different way of, of seeing the world. And, and that got me interested in this idea of being able to see things differently, like how a machine sees things and understands things. And then from there, machine learning and the application of machine learning to visual imagery. And that took me off down that path. So you mentioned this connection with Srini. So how did that come about? So I got to know Srini through the very fortunate circumstance for me of being asked to paint his portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. I came up to Queensland to meet Srini at his lab got to see the uh, all-weather bee flight facility, which blew my mind. It was, it was just amazing. And then, you know, talking to Srini and, and learning about the work that he was doing was just fascinating to me. And immediately, really, when I, when I got into the lab, I could see connections between what he was doing and the parts of art practice that I'm interested in. And it's especially around this area of decoding the world visually the way that different creatures see things and the sort of tricks and biases of their perceptions those are all things that you know I think about as a painter producing representational images here in Trini's lab were these experimental setups that the bees were flying through and they really strongly resembled to me contemporary art installations which were designed to test human perception except here they were scaled down to test bee perception so you know, essentially, I just walked in and Srini has already set up this great art exhibition, only the audience was bees rather than humans. So it was a simple step for me then just to reverse that process and steal his ideas and apply them to humans instead. Fantastic. Well, you know, art imitates life, right? Or is it the other way around? Yeah. <laughs> so Srini, did you think that you would have any of your work having applications in the art world? No, no, I didn't. Actually, in many cases, it, people have sort of come to our lab, you know. We haven't really invited it. My wife is an artist, but she hasn't really pushed me in that direction. It's a blessing, I think, and it's really fortunate, yeah. And did you find any ideas spark from the creativity of that whole process? Did it take you on any interesting research avenues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we had, uh, with, uh, Sam and I had a collaboration once where uh, they set up a whole a range of Sam's paintings as well as a scaled up version of uh, the apparatus we used to train bees. So we, they had human beings experiencing what uh, bees would be experiencing and then a kind of audience participation kind of exhibition. So that was really exciting. Trina, can you tell us a bit more about the science behind what Sam's doing with the algorithms and photographic image learning? How does a machine do that? Okay, I, I must uh, begin by saying I'm not an expert in machine learning or artificial intelligence, but uh, here's my take on it. When I was talking about photographic image learning in our initial discussion, I really was talking about learning a photograph in the literal sense as, as a photograph, you know, pixel by pixel, memorizing the entire image, and then using that as a template to see if you're given another image of that same person, whether it's exactly the same image or not. 
That's a very simple thing to do. All you have to do is look at each pixel in turn and see whether it's a perfect match or not, right? So that any machine can do. Uh, it's very simple. But what is the challenge is to, for example, if it's a face recognition problem, to be able to recognize that it's the same person's face regardless of the viewpoint from which you're looking at that face or regardless of the size of the face, for example. You could be looking at the face from a big distance when the face is very small or when you could look close up when it's very large. So allowing for all of these perspective changes and having a machine learn to recognize it's the same person or a different one, that's the real challenge. And the way I think artificial intelligence does it is to, it's partly a neuroscience inspired. You've got a set of neural layers, they're called deep convolutional networks, I think, where information from the retina, which is captured by the eye, gets transmitted to the first layer, it does a bit of processing, and then it gets transmitted to the second layer, which has a little more processing and so on, up to up to about the 100th layer. There's lots of layers in these machines. And then and with each layer, the connect, it does some processing, and there's the connection that sort of connects the output of that layer to the next layer. And there are these weights whose values you can manipulate. These are like the gains of these signals. You, know? you can amplify a signal or you can reduce it. There's lots of signals going through. And what happens is initially the network starts with a whole bunch of random gains because you don't know how, what, what are the right gains, right? You start off with a completely random set. And then you give it a face, image of a face. It gives you a certain output. If it's correct, you reinforce those gains saying it looks like you're doing the right thing. If it gives you the wrong answer, you turn down those gains. It's a bit like you're, punish, you're either punishing or rewarding a network, depending on whether it's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Eventually, after millions and millions of examples of the same face viewed from different directions, the, uh, the neural network gets it right. And you can simultaneously train the neural network to, to look at, for example, two different faces, one of Sam's and one of mine, and say, okay, is it Sam or is it training? And you can train it that way to make distinction between two different uh, people, uh, regardless of the perspective view of that particular person. So that's how I think uh, training works in neural networks. Would that be right, uh, Sam? Would that, do you agree with that? Yeah, that's, that is pretty much my understanding. The algorithms that I've been using, I've been using uh, yeah, deep convolutional generative adversarial networks, DC, GANs. The number of layers is actually pretty small. So it's usually only four or eight layers that we're using. The adversarial process is, again, this is interesting to me as an artist because it's, it's often described as being the forger and the, and the critic. So one part of the algorithm is the forger and is producing an image. It sort of starts with a random seed, processes that through the convolutional layers with the weightings, produces an image that goes back down through convolutional layers and the, and the critic is deciding whether that matches the data set, the reference data set or not. So say I've trained the algorithm on my own set of images, it produces an image and say, is this a painting by Sam Leach? And the critic says, yes, it is or no, it isn't. And yeah, the learning process is that if it gets it right and the image is one of mine, then it gets rewarded. If it gets it wrong and you know mistakes a forged image, one of mine, then it's a negative. So the artist or the forger gets better and better with each iteration and the critic also gets better and better through each iteration until it's producing images that begin to resemble in, in a general sense the paintings that are that are put in but it's all happening at a, I guess a fairly low resolution and I usually use a pretty low number of cycles because for me the errors and the glitches and the problems are, are all pretty useful stuff for making artworks I don't necessarily want it to be a completely perfect image I like to have a bit of noise and roughness so it's definitely not as complex, doesn't have as many layers, and doesn't have as, as good a resolution as the really big commercial algorithms. But it really is very parallel to what people do in neuroscience. You train a, a mouse or a bee 
you reward it when it does the right thing and you punish it. Well, punishing is probably not a very good thing, but you, with a neural network, you can punish it. There's no, yeah, <laughs> you're right. not hurting it. But it's a very similar procedure. Yeah. Mm. And the other thing I find interesting is you can build on these models. So I can have pre-trained models that have learned a particular way of doing something and then throw in a different set of images and watch it relearn. So it's like it's already learned one set of behaviours and then I give it a different set of stimuli and just see how it adapts from its learned behaviours and changes. And each model coming from a different background reacts slightly differently to the to the new inputs that get put in front of it. And you can do that with animals too. You can uh, train them to go, for example, towards a, a blue colour and get a reward and, uh, and be punished if they go to the yellow. And then after a while, when they've learned that, you can reverse the training and make them you know, go to the yellow one to get a reward. So they're very flexible. The learning is very flexible. With AI and art then, what's kind of interesting is really how much of an artist can AI be? How much do you attribute the art to the AI and to the human? I mean, it really, with the way it's working, you're still setting up the algorithms and deciding which images are the input and what parameters you'll have to be the critic or the forger. So you've still got quite a lot of control over it at the end of the day, don't you? Yes and no. It's, there's, there's a random element in there. So I don't, I don't really have complete control and it's, like, it's really difficult to predict exactly what the outcome is going to be. So I do, of course, you know, in, in a way, exert as much control as I can because I have, I have particular goals for what I want it to produce. But when it goes through these convolutional layers, you basically can't predict exactly how it's going to learn to produce the images. It's, it's almost like a, a bit of a black box in a way. I would not say that it's an artist. I mean, even the term, I think, artificial intelligence is a little bit problematic in its application. It's, it's really machine learning, I think. Although, I mean, I don't know, it's just, it's, it kind of gets into a gray area. And I'm sure you would find this, Trini. This is like when you kind of put you know, animals into different environments and they react in particular ways. And you can say, well, it's a learned response because of this, this and this. But, you know, humans do exactly the same thing. And we have no problem saying, well, that's because of human intelligence. But we do it with an animal. We say, wow, that's not because of intelligence. It's just a learned behavior. Exactly, exactly. That, that, that's uh, anthropomorphization is, is really always a problem, you know, to attribute human qualities to, a, to an animal. And sometimes not want to do that because uh, you can't possibly expect that from an insect or a, or a mouse. That's always a, a, a kind of prejudice we have, and we have to kind of get over that, I think, because uh, we're finding more and more that even lowly creatures like bees can do things like face recognition of human beings, for example. Not only can they recognize each other's faces, people have shown that in wasps, but bees can recognize, be trained to recognize human faces, again, uh, irrespective of the perspective view, you know. And, uh, and a bee doesn't live very long. It lives only for about four weeks. So within a few days, you can train a bee to do all these things. So it's obviously not receiving millions of training samples the way you do in AI. A very small number of samples, and it's learned that so there's obviously something going on inside there, but we don't really know. All we know at this stage with bees is that they can do some of these amazing things, but exactly how they do it and how the brain works, we still don't know. That's the next stage, you know, opening up this black box and finding out exactly what's going on inside, because that's the trouble with machine learning too. While you can get these things to do wonderful things, it really is a black box, like Sam mentioned. You don't know exactly how it does it. So you have to, it comes a time you need to open the black box to try and understand why it really works so well. <laughs> and with the human, it's hardest to open the black box because it's a very complex brain. But with an insect with far fewer neurons, maybe there's hope of getting some information and insight into how that black box really works if you open it up. But that's, that's the next stage, yeah. And, and the thing that I find interesting with that human part of it is, of course, the human brain is, is incredibly complex. But when we produce that large replica of the bee experiment for humans to walk through, 
you know, that humans will react to those stimuli in the same way that bees do. So despite having these very large, complicated brains, there's obviously some pretty simple, basic level processing going on to allow people to navigate the world. That's right. And in some cases, those basic principles are much easier to discover in a simple creature because they're not that many things to look at. You know, with a big brain, you're looking at like looking for a needle in a haystack. There's so many things going on. Whereas with a simpler brain, you can find the essential element of what you're looking for much more easily. Because bee brains are pretty small, really, aren't they? Small, and also in terms of neurons, they only have less than a million neurons, so far fewer neurons than a, than a human brain. Compared to our, what, like about 100 billion, isn't exactly, it, for a human? Exactly, yeah. We've talked roughly about your research. You're sort of looking at it from almost a different angle to AI, at how animal brains work, particularly bees. You also look at budgies and other animals. How do the the way that bee brains work, how can that translate to machines? So at, at the moment, I don't think we have any uh, great insights into how this can be translated into machine uh, learning. That'll be the next stage, I think, for all uh, you know, the, the, the younger neuroscientists to do. All we've done so far in our lab and mostly in other labs around the world uh, with these small brains is to look at what they're capable of doing and documenting what they can do. So just to give you a few examples, bees can learn abstract properties of visual patterns, for example, symmetry tell whether the pattern is symmetrical, left-right symmetrical or not. You can train bees on uh, to dis- distinguish between symmetrical patterns and asymmetrical patterns on a certain set, maybe a dozen, and then give them totally novel symmetrical or asymmetrical patterns, and they can just be able to decide whether this particular pattern is symmetrical or not. They can learn that, so they can generalize properties of patterns that they, they're given. So they learn patterns not just in a photographic way, you know, kind of a template way, but they learn general properties of the pattern. For example, its orientation or its symmetry. They can also do things like learn to break camouflage. You're probably familiar with this famous picture of an artist, uh, with a photographer, I think, a Dalmatian with a spotted dog against a spotted background, and it's camouflage. You don't see it. But the moment someone tells you, hey, look, there is a Dalmatian in there, then it pops out, right? Mm. So you can get bees to learn to break camouflage in that way too. So you can show them the Dalmatian image. They don't see the Dalmatian against the spotted background. But if you show them an uncamouflaged version of this dog, so it's a black dog against a spotted background, it pops out immediately. They learn that. And then when you show them the camouflage object, they will pick out the camouflage object and pick out the Dalmatian immediately. So were they actually shown this artwork, the bees? Not this particular artwork, but similar ones. Some other similar artwork. Ones. Yeah, See yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, it's kind of like the ties in with the whole art theme. So you're actually showing bees artwork. I wonder if they appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they do have a preference for symmetrical objects. Probably because it's a natural instinct to, uh, when you're approaching a flower, to check out its health. A symmetrical flower is a sign of a healthy flower, and it's meant to be a good nectar-bearing flower. You see, if it's uh, lost a petal or something, it's likely to be asymmetrical, so bees instinctively prefer symmetrical flowers. So it's probably built into the system to pick things that are symmetrical. But lots of other things, for example, learning to go, go through, navigate through mazes. Bees can learn to do that very quickly. Bees can learn to... Uh, they can learn complex associations too. For example, uh, you can train a bee to go to a particular food source, which is laced with the scent of rose for a couple of days, and then go to a different food source at a different location, which has a different scent, for example, um, lemon or something. And then you can train them back and forth between these two food sources. Always when it's going to f- location A, it's got the scent of rose. When it's going to location B, it's got the scent of lemon, right? And then after a couple of days of training, then you can come back the next morning, even before they started foraging, and you just pump in one of these scents into the hive. And when you pump in rose, these trained bees come out and immediately go look for the feeder where the rose scent was. So they can learn to associate a, a scent with a particular location. 
And very fast. Very fast, yeah. And it's a complex association, right? It's a bit like, you know, when you listen to a piece of music which you had heard a long time ago when you were a kid, it might remind you of something you're doing at that particular time. It's a very kind of ancient memory that that triggers. It also tells you what you're doing at that time. You can remember all those uh, complex associations. So all of that is also there in bees. Now, exactly how it works at the neural level, we still don't know. So all we can now say is that bees are, the more we look, the more similar they are. How similar they are to humans is what we can really say. We cannot say, what we cannot do is find out exactly how they're doing it. That's the next step. That's the next challenge, I think, for the younger neuroscientists. I'm retired. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> but the younger, next generation of scientists will, will have to do that. Yeah. And it'll be very exciting. And I think that goes to show how difficult it is with AI, right? Because if still it's so unknown in a very simple brained animal, then you can see how difficult it is to train a machine to actually learn something or to actually take in all all that information. Yeah, so. and, and the hope is that we might find something. There could be an aha moment. You know, you train a bee and you finally look at the network and you say, aha, this is what it does. It's very simple. For example, you know, going back to some of the earlier work we did, not with cognition, but just looking at how a bee lands, for example. We filmed bees and we found that, you know, the, the way they make a smooth landing is actually that as they come into land, they fly slower and slower as they get closer and closer to the ground. And what they really are doing is they're adjusting their speed so as to keep the speed of the image of the ground constant in their eyes. That's all they're doing. And when you do that, you, it's a beautiful landing autopilot. You, you make, make automatically make a smooth landing without having to know how far away you are from the ground or how rapidly you're approaching it. it and it's just a very simple kind of uh, rule that you learn. It, it's an aha moment you kind of <laughs> it comes to you, you know. <laughs> and they say, my God, why didn't I think of this before? So this is what we're hoping we can learn by looking at bees, that we'll find something very simple underlying this thing, which does not require a lot of training. There could have been training in terms of millions of years of evolution of these bees, for example, and it's finally become hardwired into this landing strategy, right? So we cannot say the bees actually learned this during a short life, lifetime of uh, you know, four weeks or something. It could have been an evolutionary process, but for the end result, it's just something very simple, and the black box has been opened, you see? <laughs> so that's what we're hoping to do with, with looking at the simple creatures. And I guess going back to that image processing and the algorithms, how similar a process does the AI use compared to, say, a bee? I think it I think it would be similar. What the bee is telling us is that you maybe don't need that many layers. There must be some clever way of doing it with a very small number of layers because we look at a bee brain, there aren't that many layers. <laughs> so there must be simple, something simple going on. If you can train bees, for example, yeah. But the other thing, which might be of interest to uh, Sam especially, is that one of my colleagues, Judith Reinhardt, who was with us uh, in, at QBI a few years ago, she and a few of her students, three of her students, were able to train bees to distinguish between Picasso paintings and Monet paintings. Hmm. And this is just by giving them a few samples. They give them, I think, eight pairs of samples. Monet versus Picasso. So you, 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 if you land on a Picasso painting, you get a reward. If you land on a Monet painting, you don't get a reward. So they learn to distinguish between these two. And then you can give them novel paintings, other paintings, I should say, which are not in the training set, you know, a Monet painting and a Picasso painting, and they'll pick the correct one. So they learn to generalize the properties of Monet versus Picasso. Maybe that's an easy thing to do. It could be, you know, color differences or differences in figure, maybe in the, in the shape of the lines. Maybe one has more straight lines, the other has curved lines. We don't know what it, we don't know what it is, but they're able to do it. And they don't need to be trained very much to do that. A yeah, couple right. of days. <laughs> and it seems like a really complex thing for learning. But yeah, it's interesting that they can do that. I find that really, really amazing, actually, that they're able to pick up those, those differences so quickly. And that is, like, that is a fascinating thing with using these types of algorithms for producing images is even with a, a low number of cycles or generations of learning, you start to get results. And it can be incredible how quickly 
it picks up distinguishing features. So if you're doing landscapes, for example, even after only a handful of generations, it'll start to pick out a, a sky and a, and a ground. And then a few more, it starts to pick out trees and, and lakes. And only a few more, it starts to get reflections in the lakes. It's just astonishing, in a sense, how little processing power it actually takes to start to generate these recognizable, convincing images from really small data sets as well. And you can train uh, networks to pick up uh, forgeries as well, I suppose, you know, false paintings. Uh. Yeah, yeah, you, you can. And I mean, you can, you can imagine in the future an application that would, be, that would probably be able to pick out forgeries of an artist better than a human connoisseur could. Because, hmm. you know, there's already applications in detecting cancer in tumors and tumors and things in, in scans. So uh, you can use an AI to to detect anomalies in scans and will have sure. a higher success rate than, mm. than mm. a human looking yeah. at Yeah, the radiologists are getting very worried that they're going to be replaced by a computer very soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. Well, this is, I think this is one of the interesting things with AI is, and, and why, why I'm interested in it in, in my painting practice is it's the jobs that are at risk are actually the expert jobs. It's the, it's the jobs with, with high levels of skill and training. And the jobs that are really difficult to replicate are, you know, the, the supposed sort of manual hand labor. So from my point of view, just, you know, the dumb stuff of dragging a brush over, over canvas, that's really difficult for a computer to replicate. But the really tricky stuff of analyzing a whole series of images and coming up with conceptual links, that's actually not that hard to get a, to get a computer to learn to do. So a new painting that this machine uh, generates could inspire you, right, into to thinking about this in some other way which you hadn't thought about before. You say, aha, why didn't I think of that before? And then apply that in some other way, you know, make you think laterally in some other way. And then uh, maybe many artists are using this, Sam, but they don't let on <laughs> already. <laughs> but the, the, other, the other question I wanted to ask is, can you maybe mix two artists? Tell them it's the same artist, but you really are two different artists, for example, Monet and Picasso. Get it to put them together and see if it comes up with something quite interesting. You can. And there's, there's some really, really interesting experiments going on. They're, they're sort of in the early stages, but it's looking at what an artist might have done if they had met another artist. So you could go back and look at someone like Leonardo da Vinci and say, well, what, what if he had seen the work of Pablo Picasso? How would that have changed what Leonardo da Vinci did? Uh, I think that's just amazing because then you can really start throwing some unexpected combinations into the mix because you can look at, you know, look at, if you look at an artist before Picasso and then after Picasso, you can see they've made, made certain changes to what they do. Apply that back to other artists who never had that experience and see what, see what comes out. It's really, it's really interesting stuff. I wonder what those bees would have done, though, if it was a mix between Picasso and Monet. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Which one would they have gone to? <laughs> I don't know. Interesting question, yes. <laughs> But it is, I guess, comes back to how brains work. There's similarities with machine learning and, and a lot of the research in machi machine learning is actually based loosely on how the brain works and that's where you know, a section of AI is actually headed. We have inputs to the visual system and then there are decisions made on those inputs, right? And then there's perceptions on top of that and then there's rewards on top of that to go well that perception is seen as better than mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. that one so mm -hmm. you know when it comes down to the basics that's what we're looking at isn't it yeah yeah and everything is really based on uh, you know either reward or punishment in terms of you know recognizing that an animal is dangerous you know flight for example escape from somewhere because a particular situation is deemed to be dangerous right and you have to be able to recognize those situations very quickly to survive 
Similarly with tracking down uh, food sources, I guess, you need to be able to do that. You have to be, uh, well, nature makes you evolve to, to be a successful forager. And this is what we're finding with uh, lots of creatures, including bees. They perfected the art of foraging uh, through millions and millions of years of evolution, and they can find a, a, a good food source several kilometers away from the hive very quickly and then get the other bees to also go and visit it. Well, a bee is not just a single bee, but as, as, as a colony itself, as a kind of an intelligent uh, machine, that's a very beautiful uh, organism on its own, right? Because there's a lot of communication going on between the individuals, and it's got a sort of collective intelligence that's uh, greater than the sum of the individual parts of it. The individual bees have a, a, a intelligence of their own. There's no doubt about it. We've talked about this uh, in, in, in this podcast. But the colony itself seems to have a separate intelligence of its own, and it knows uh, how best to organize itself so as to promote the survival of the colony. So at the moment, bees are still smarter than a machine. <laughs> well, there's some things where machines can do very well. For example, uh, you know, complex calculations, you know, modeling uh, large numbers, multiply numbers very fast and do all that sort of stuff. And of course, uh, machine learning. But to get, for example, simple things like to get a robot to put a hand inside a, a biscuit jar and pick up a biscuit using a camera to guide its arm, you know, that is such a challenge, it would, uh, whereas an infant can learn that within, you know, <laughs> maybe a few days. So uh, it's, it's amazing that some of these powerful calculations are done very easily by a computer, but getting some of these mundane behavioral tasks to, to work right seems to be a real challenge. Mm-hmm. So there's something that we're missing, I think, that we still have to learn about. <laughs> Shows you how amazing and complex our brains are. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it's really it's really interesting to think about that quality of emergent intelligence, though. So you know the the collective intelligence of the hive, and then and then to think about the the possibility of all of these really relatively simple machine learning algorithms. Perhaps if a whole lot of them were put into some kind of cooperative organization, then you might get something really interesting mm, coming mm. up. So much yeah. exciting stuff to come. You know, when when Trini was talking earlier about the aesthetic preference of bees for, you know, like symmetrical flowers because it's a better a better food source and evolution determining those aesthetic preferences like wanting to run from predators or ways to to do good foraging. That those things all express themselves in, in human aesthetics as well. And there are studies showing that there's preferences for various types of paintings that might be related to uh, you know some kind of history of human human evolution, you know, the type of landscapes that we like to look at. That's one of the things that I'm really interested in in using machine learning to explore is to try and uncover some of those aesthetic preferences that maybe we we almost can't see because they're so they're so ingrained. But using a machine, you can find some of those things in a way that a human can't do. And obviously, my ultimate objective with that is to find something that it just proves uh, you know utterly irresistible to uh, any kind of art uh, viewer, uh, and and then be able to apply those those few rules in my in my own paintings. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download a copy of our latest magazine, The Brain, The Nature of Discovery. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you.